Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. So I've been the guiding teacher of a large Buddhist community in New York since 2005. Um, Besides teaching twice a week, I do a lot of one-on-one, most of my work is one-on-one counseling as well as um, writing for various uh, publications, especially Tricycle Magazine, which is a Buddhist magazine. And uh, my background is, I grew up in a family where both Buddhism and uh, was, was practiced by my father, who was also in recovery and wound up being a Buddhist practitioner because he was a pretty devout atheist. And so uh, uh, being a Zen Buddhist was the only solution he could come up with that would... Uh, Meet at that point. There was a exceptional emphasis in recovery to join some uh, religious lineage. My mom was um, deeply, heavily into Freudian psychology, and the bookshelves were lined with uh, mostly with her books, some of my dad's Buddhist books. So growing up. Um, as a kid, a teen, I never really, there never really was a clear delineation between uh, what the Buddha taught and what was psychology. I just read them all as part of the same endeavor to address human suffering. And uh, to this day, I tend to approach the core Buddhist teachings as if uh, they are the records of the first great psychologist. And um, so I don't, I'm not a uh, religious Buddhist, I am a secular Buddhist who tries to integrate both uh, clinical psychology and uh, neuropsychology into looking for the intersections with uh, practices of early Buddhism. So there you go. To end, indeed, today's topic is addressing the core underlying um, factors producing both addiction and compulsive uh, behaviors. And the goal will be to uh, first understand what creates or what creates the causes and conditions that result in addictive behaviors. And I'm not just talking about substance abuse, I'm talking about uh, any processed behavior as well. Food, binge eating, shopping, uh, compulsive social media dependence, uh, gambling, uh, love addiction, and so forth. So I'm, I'm going to try to not uh, narrowly um, uh, focus on the type of addiction. I'm going to try to make this as inclusive as I possibly can. So 
that no, hopefully, if you didn't find yourself in one of those things I just mentioned, just, <laughs> try, I don't know, try. <laughs> So, here it goes. Um, there's been a lot of attempts by the pharmaceutical industry as well as um, uh, neuroscience departments of uh, a wide-ranging array of uh, universities to try to find a gene responsible for addiction, to try to find some kind of uh, biological marker that results. And after decades and hundreds of millions of dollars spent, uh, the best that they could come up with is that there's a whole array of different uh, predispositions, but none of them actually can turn a human being into an addict unless you have the right early socializing events in your actual experience, your interpersonal life. What that means is you can be born with a deficit of GABA synaptically or dopamine or serotonin, left and right brains. You could be born with an overactive amygdala, but if you wind up in a secure family with uh, ongoing uh, uh, mirroring, marking, emotional empathy, um, and all the core factors that create what's called secure base or secure attachment, then you will not wind up uh, an addict unless there's a subsequent trauma that happens afterwards. That can, of course, but so there's, in essence, at the end of the day, it's nature and nurture. And for the point of today's talk, I'm talking entirely about nurture, not about the the nature part. So uh, I'm happy to answer some questions about that when we have the different Q&A points, but um, today I'm talking pretty much about the uh, events that happen in our journey through life that uh, result in addictive behaviors. So we're all born with an innate psychobiological uh, drive, our core drive, is motivating us to connect. That's how we survive. Our species, our brains are literally uh, wired to connect first and foremost with others um, to survive. We are all born completely prematurely. Uh, obviously the birth canal is not wide enough to uh, uh, deposit onto this earth completely uh, self-sufficient uh, adults with big brains, big heads, and all that. So we're born tiny uh, with undeveloped brains, and it takes years and years and years of uh, nurture to uh, bring a child to a place where it can be uh, self-sufficient to a degree, and that's just to a degree. And uh, so the key factor in that is that we all have motivation, we have neural motivations to connect. Our interior cingulate cortex of the brain, as Lieberman has shown, is entirely dedicated to establish 
these connections and to the degree we do so creates, activates serotonin, endorphins, makes us feel good, uh, oxytocin, we feel good, uh, uh, essentially all of the mood swings, the, uh, the down regulation from the parasympathetic to the sympathetic nervous system is avoided. So it's, it's all pretty good if we meet a certain, if certain conditions are met in our early caregiving experience. In essence, what I'm saying is in early infancy that the nature of our connection shapes our, uh, not only our personality, our emotional lives, uh, it shapes literally what we expect of others, how we perceive others, what kind of people we will turn to for love. None of us are born with a, a sort of a brain that knows the way a healthy family or a healthy bond with another human being should be. The brain is completely malleable, neuroplastic, and it just defines what love is and what attachment is by what it gets from its families. So, uh, what do we need to have a secure base? What do we need to feel secure in the world? Well, the work of Brown and Elliot and so many others, Mary Main and so forth, uh, indicates that there's four qualities, basically. The first is that when we're with, in early life, when we're with our caregivers, that we feel safe. And by safe, that means that we don't, uh, we're not living in the ongoing state of alert that at any moment they could drop us, put us aside, go away, be distracted, not be present to create a sense of security. That's the very foundation of attachment, is feeling safe. And then in adult life, of course, that continues to be the felt sense that somebody's reliably there. So in a relationship, it's uh, a friendship, we need to have the sense that somebody's reliably available, won't disconnect abruptly, that there's a pattern of where connection will occur. The second is what's known by various terms, uh, mirroring, feeling seen, feeling understood, um, empathy. Essentially, it's the sense that not only are you safe with your parents, but that they, when they look at you, they can see how you feel. They understand that they get what you're experiencing. And it's important that they get not just a pleasant, happy, excited, exploratory uh, states, but that they also be able to mirror, which means simply express by literally mirroring your facial expression when you're an infant, whatever emotional state you're in. Angry, frightened, overwhelmed, overstimulated, disgusted, uncomfortable, whatever it is, they be able to mirror that back. And that, that is the most crucial stage of integrating all of your emotions into your future core self. If that doesn't happen with certain emotions or certain impulses, if every time you get angry and frustrated and you're a little girl in a misogynist society and your parents have been uh, conditioned to believe that 
anger is not uh, appropriate for little girls. They might frown or disconnect the attachment. The, parent, the father or the mother might look away, might do some kind of facial gesture that indicates that's not all right. And in this sudden shift, they inform the infant that this entire feeling, this entire natural human survival emotion is no longer okay. And there's every chance I know from my work that this little girl will wind up growing up to be a woman who's disempowered of her anger and thus can't protect herself in setting boundaries and uh, establishing a sense of what her rights are in interactions with others. All the emotions are vital. That's They determine our behaviors. They are natural survival instincts and if we disempower people of their emotions then we disempower them of absolutely necessary interpersonal tools. The third quality after being safe and being seen is being soothed. We need to have the feeling that when we're with the attachment figures in our life that they will be able to what's called down-regulate or limbically co-regulate. All that means is my breathing pattern locks in with yours, and if I'm upset and you're not, just by being in your presence and you creating the conditions where um, you send reassuring gazes, you know, a gentle touch, uh, soothing words, that my limbic system, my breathing, my sympathetic nervous system switches to my parasympathetic and I down-regulate, my blood pressure goes down, I breathe less, my exhalations become longer, the vagal break shifts, and I'm now in a what's called rest and digest. If I'm agitated and you can't soothe me, I'll wind up in what's known as defensive behaviors. Defensive behaviors we'll talk about, but this is what leads to a host of maladaptive coping strategies. And the fourth quality, the last quality, is we need to feel appreciated and delighted in. Somebody that not just can soothe us and see us, but also stands and observes our growth, our taking risks, our expressing ourselves, our being silly, dancing, our spontaneity, our authentic expression of our core self, and that that parent will acknowledge it and smile and feel and support the risk-taking, because it is risky for a child to display its spontaneous impulses. And so when it gets rewarded with a smile, uh, an applause, a loving touch, a gentle, kind, uh, approving language, uh, anything like that, the child then is encouraged in the future to be to stay in rest and digest and explore and embrace her opportunities and to grow and to develop new relationships with other people. So you get at least some of these four you know, uh, qualities regularly and you have what's called a secure base and it means you feel empowered to explore the world. You won't be overly preoccupied with relationships on the one hand. You won't give up on relationships with others and just try to be self-reliant your entire life, or you won't fall into the absolute uh, most uh, painful state of 
dissociating, disconnecting, and trying to simply survive by uh, disconnecting from all of the sensations and experiences that surround you. If you are secure, you will balance relationships with work well, you will have confidence in your endeavors, you will expect the best from other people. <laughs> I say you, but probably none of you are here when I talk about this. <laughs> I always say that uh, statistically 50% of Americans, slightly over, I think 52, the last clinical study I read, are secure, but I never meet them. <laughs> there. Nobody comes crawling into Buddhist centers and into <laughs> counseling. You know, yeah, I came here because I'm happy, well-adjusted. <laughs> Nothing but blue skies ahead. Um, so you'll wind up in rest and digest. You'll have, uh, more importantly, you'll also have, uh, rest and digest means you won't be constantly diving into the lower states of the nervous system, the sympathetic, where you're constantly on guard, constantly ready to act and defend yourself or run or fight, or the dorsal dive where you've literally dissociated and checked out and you're now in a derealization state. You wind up in the highest ventral parasympathetic, which is where you express your feelings uh, through gestures, through facial expressions, and you feel uh, safe to express your core self and to, to grow and to embrace life. You've got also what's called bilateral integration. You don't overly rely on the emotional right hemisphere to guide you through relationships or the uh, left, which is all about accumulating survival tools and rational storytelling. You actually balance both. So you can essentially get your needs met. You can state boundaries without any, uh, you won't, essentially stutter or come or find it extremely awkward to set boundaries. You won't feel guilty when you set boundaries because you believe you deserve to be safe and to be um, treated well. But for the rest of us here, uh, who have had some degree of insecure attachment, we fall into three categories. Uh, the first is, in childhood, known as anxious, and in adult, known as preoccupied. Preoccupied uh, individual received unreliable caregiving. Sometimes it was very adequate, very good. Sometimes it was insufficient. And there was no established pattern. Uh, obvious example, one of many, but one constant example I see in my work with individuals is that uh, someone comes in and they grew up in a family where there was a degree of a stable unit and then there was early on a divorce. The parents separated and the connection with one caregiver, the caregiver who uh, didn't get uh, primary custody, um, that caregiver very often to the child is desired, the contact is desired with that caregiver because 
the child is left with another caregiver, for example, the mother, that doesn't always happen, but in this, for an example, the, the child winds up with the mother, the mother after the divorce is understandably upset and anxious about financial, uh, just making ends meet, and therefore the child grows up in the state of, well, any moment, uh, vital attachments and security can be taken away. So <clears throat> she or he are, as they grow up, preoccupied by their primary attachments. They find it difficult to balance relationships with work because they tend to um, revert whenever they're under stress to focus on their attachments. They live with the expectation of being abandoned and they live also with what's called abandonment terror, which is a state that if I lose connection with someone in my adult life that's an attachment figure, I'll re-experience all the trauma and wounding that I experienced as a child. And it's understandable that people feel that way because the right hemisphere which holds all of our emotional experience is timeless. Events that happened to you 30 or 40 years ago are still as fresh in your right brain as if they happened yesterday. They do not age or fade or go away. They are implicit memories that stay very, very strong. So an early abandonment <clears throat> or an early trauma can be just as devastating to you today if something re-triggers that buried memory. So and a, a sep a losing, get, going through a breakup if you've got preoccupied attachment will trigger all of the unresolved emotions of fear and uh, shame that children who lose one caregiver or lose access to a caregiver experience. Um, these people can be at times uh, understandably uh, untrusting, constantly looking for small signs of um, abandonment or indications. They're hypervigilant. They read other people's faces almost like a superpower. They can read micro expressions. Uh, they can literally see the slightest twitch in the corner of an eye and begin to get uncomfortable and start the, the drop into their sympathetic nervous system. Uh, they are prone to anxiety disorders, borderline and histrionic personality disorders. Uh, tendency in addiction towards stimulants. You think, why is someone who's pro prone to hypervigilance, why would they use cocaine? That doesn't make any sense. Wouldn't they want to use the exact opposite, something to calm them down? Well, no, actually, interestingly enough, we, uh, clinical studies have shown we tend to use substances that actually recreate are coping strategies that we rely on under stress. So someone who shuts down, as we'll see, will turn to heroin. Someone or someone who numbs their emotions will turn to alcohol. And someone who stays in a hypervigilant state to feel safe and survive will use a stimulant. That'll be their drug of choice. That doesn't mean they'll only use stimulants. They might well use alcohol or pot or whatever, <coughs> shopping, food because uh, they're all dopamine-based, so they'll all uh, meet a need. But in general, people's drug of choice is largely determined by their attachment. 
These people in relationships will be bilaterally uh, in unbalanced. They will, in uh, tense uh, interpersonal situations, their right brain will take over and it will lead to escalating emotional states of fear, sadness, distress. Um, and they have exceptionally degrees of core shame, a feeling that there's something wrong with me. That's why my parents split. That's why I didn't get access to the mother or the father who I needed to feel safe. And that core shame stays and it creates an adult life, imposter syndrome, and I'm gonna give an entire talk on core shame in the second part. <laughs> you have something happy to look forward to. <laughs> So, uh, the second is um, people who are avoidant in childhood or dismissive as adults. And these are children, you can tell like the, the secure child from the uh, anxious child in a park or in a novel setting. The secure child will know that the mother or father has its back and therefore will wander around and explore and integrate with other children. If you put it in the strange test where the mother abruptly leaves, the child will cry but then self-soothe and turn towards a new adult and bond because it expects the best out of other people. The anxious child will not bond with others. She or he will follow the mother to the door and if the mother closes the door, the child will cry and will not be able to self-soothe and will not be able to turn to another adult in the room for caregiving. The third child gives up on attachment because both parents are emotionally in some way unavailable, not attuned, not capable of mirroring, not capable of really making the child feel safe or seen. And so the child will... Uh, learn that all of its emotions, especially the negative ones, have to be uh, numbed or compartmentalized, pushed out of awareness. So this child, by nature, having given up on attachments with others, seeks to become self-reliant as soon as possible. Very often will turn uh, uh, towards narciss early signs of narcissism, sense of it doesn't need anyone. Uh, the self-esteem uh, failures due to the core shame, this child has core shame as well, uh, leads to a kind of catastrophic failure of a sense of oneself that is essentially compensated by creating a grandiose ego Look how important, look how cool I am, look how good I am, I can do this alone, I don't need anyone. Um, this uh, child grows up to be a dismissive adult. Uh, uh, in terms of gender, there's a predilection towards men, go figure. I'm sure you've met them. Uh, one of them is the president. <laughs> Narcissist. I can go on. Um, these are people who eliminate painful feelings by blocking stimuli from uh, their prefrontal cortex. They are emotionally essentially shut down. 
They will try to solve interpersonal situations logically. They believe that they are the epicenter of logic and reason. They are constantly seeking distance in relationships. Um, they are very rigid, struggle to express empathy, feel distant in connection. They, um, can, uh, they have a, there's a predilection not only to NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, but to obsessive compulsive disorder as well. Uh, in essence, they constantly seek control in virtually every situation. The anxious person, the preoccupied, constantly seeks attention and reassurance. The dismissive seeks just to be in control, not to be crowded, not to be engulfed, wants constantly to be, uh, to have freedom and little responsibilities. They find other people's minds to be inscrutable. If you know anything about psychology, they're poor at mentalization, which means they don't get how other people feel. Um, and this is really a shame because real, our sense of meaning is based on an ability to feel all of the shifts in our limbic structures, our, our somatic experience. And if people, as a way to survive their childhood, start to systematically numb themselves, their life can be essentially stripped of any deeper sense of real resonant meaning. And that's why there's a, while in uh, anxious, preoccupied, tend towards anxiety disorders, um, and are very often treated with SSNIs, SSRIs, uh, people who are avoidant have a predilection towards monopolar depression and by nature uh, have this deep sense of emptiness. Uh, nothing deeply resonates because they've self-numbed, they've compartmentalized so much of their true feelings. They experience often anhedonia, which is inability at times to enjoy pleasure uh, in personal, interpersonal connections. And there's a marked, of course, tendency towards alcoholism, because alcohol uh, slams your brain with GABA and gets rid of your anxiety, not only your anxiety, but a lot of your uh, emotional awareness. Everything becomes, you know, we become disembodied, uh, and it makes it easier to interact with people. Um, and finally, there's the last group, the disorganized child. This is about only 5% of the population, 3 to 5. So there's 50% secure, about 20, a little over 20 anxious, a little around 20 avoidant, and then the, the last is the disorganized child who's been, who was frightened of her caregivers, put in an impossible situation because the very person she's programmed to seek security from is the one that's causing fear, causing distress in her. So she's constantly caught in this come, go, flee approach, which gives birth to a, uh, an autonomic nervous system that is constantly unstable, switching back and forth, uh, dorsal dives into dissociative disconnects. Uh, she gravitates towards regressive behavior People with disorganized or fearful avoidant attachment grow up to struggle to have any 
what we call commonly a career. They're beset by expectations of abuse, and they, of course, recreate these, this childhood abuse by winding up in very dramatic, conflictual relationships with other people where they are constantly back in the grind of just surviving. Um, they have no coherent strategy for getting their needs met. The anxious person's strategy is connecting and monitoring their principal connections and just staying constantly on guard in their relationships. That's their strategy. The avoidance strategy is to become as self-reliant as possible and not depend on anyone. But the fearful, avoidant, disorganized has no coherent strategy. Uh, they are a huge predilection towards self-harm and towards heroin, opiate addiction. And uh, that's why we're in such a, right now, this horrific opiate uh, 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 crisis. crisis, yeah, but I was thinking another word. <laughs> Epidemic, yes, thank you. So, <clears throat> stop for a moment. All this sounds very psychological. Surely this is nothing to do with Buddhism. Actually, quite the opposite. The Buddha taught that there was this primary early state of development called Nama Rupa, which happens before all of our conscious adult interactions, where all of our core perceptions of the world and other people and how to get our needs met are shaped. Those uh, perceptions are known as sana. And the Buddha, interestingly enough, uh, well, not actually the Buddha, in the um, <clears throat> Buddha Gosa's commentary, the Abhidhamma, posits that there are four types of people. One of them is known as sada, or confident, who sees good in others, who has conviction, she has a balanced life. I would say that it is the very definition of what we now know to be secure attachment. The other is loba, desirous, under stress, grasps for pleasure, has an underlying, has a, an overall feeling of lack. I would presuppose that this is closest to what we today would call anxious attachment. Another is dosa or aversive, someone who walks into a room and the, the grasping walks into the room and sees everything that's great, a person that looks attractive and sexy, well, where's the food, what can I get out of this? The, uh, uh, yeah. the aversive walks into the room and immediately points to all the things they don't like. These are literally examples in the early Abhidhamma uses these examples. So there's the aversive person who like literally just sees everything that's wrong. I would point out that that's uh, eerily similar to the avoidant or dismissive. And then finally, there's moha or delusional, which is overwhelmed, fearful, and prone to escape into fantasy. And I would put forth that that is almost identical to what we know as the disorganized attachment who dissociates and uh, disconnects from real sensory experience and tends towards the personalized states. So I, I see a great continuity in these insights that early on in life, before we develop our 
um, coherent memories, our coherent stories of who we are, and the nonverbal exchanges of the first two years of life are the most primary formative experiences that uh, direct us either towards regulating our emotional life through connecting with other people or regulating our emotions by uh, defensive behaviors, especially substances and uh, process behaviors. So you might say, well, wait a second, I had a great relationship with my parents and still I drank heavily or still I, I have had issues with binge eating all my life or whatever. Um, I would put to you a couple of things. Number one, the interactions between a child and a caregiver that can create insecure attachment are very subtle. I, I, I saw one study where they showed a clip where simply a father was creating a lot of stimuli and being loud and happy in front of the child and that child exhibited early um, disorganized attachment because she found her father scary even though he had the best intentions in the world. Nothing but loving. But when she needed to be mirrored and soothed and said he stimulated and created a... Right, so it's just that subtle. Uh, but even more so, this is one of my favorite, there are long, so many longitudinal studies from uh, childhood where they can do what's known as a strange test to determine your attachment style and to then the adult adult attachment interview, which you would do in your 30s, right? So there's a 30-year span, and they follow the exact person. So um, if you're an anxious child, you will have a 75% disposition to be an anxious adult or a preoccupied adult. If you are a um, secure child, 75 80% chance of being secure, not having to struggle with addictions or compulsive disorders. Um, and very often they interview these people and the avoidance, it's always the avoidance because they shut down and disconnect from their emotions. These are people who are, you know, you know, the, the ones in, if you've ever been to AA, these are the ones that quote the steps at you and say, I don't want to know how you feel, you're just doing the steps. <laughs> I was a son of a bitch, and uh, I was an asshole, but now I got sober, and I know I sound like an asshole still, but but I'm rigid, and I had a great, great, great relationship. My parents were, were there, they knew what was right and wrong, and they told you. <laughs> but they interviewed people who proclaimed that they had terrific... Uh, family systems and lots of love and invariably you go back and you look at the original scores and it's like, holy shit. <laughs> this child is so fucking dismissive. Probably gonna want, sorry, I shouldn't be using that. I'm from Brooklyn. You're in Philly. I'm in Philly, okay. So, uh, yeah, you can read the ACE study of 18,000 individuals and they found that 
75 to 80% of drug and alcohol dependence is directly attributable to adverse childhood attachment. The meta-analysis of longitudinal associations found the same. Individuals who in childhood whose emotional regulatory needs were not fulfilled will seek relief for their negative feelings through their addictions. So there we go. Um, Essentially, early attachment and trauma are the two switches that flip on addictive behaviors, compulsive behaviors in us. You can have all of the genetic predispositions in the world, but if you get secure attachment, you will not grow up probably to be someone who struggles unless there's a subsequent trauma. So addicts and alcoholics very often describe the first drink or the first use as a kind of a, the best hug they never got. Surprise, surprise. A spiritual embrace. Um, the, the feeling of being loved that was never unconditionally loved, that was never truly there, at least in one of the primary attachments. In uh, attachment psychology, it's known as being attached to a dead object. Why is that? Well, alcohol, uh, shopping, binging with food, uh, texting, uh, Netflix, none of these experiences can mirror your emotions and therefore they cannot soothe you, they cannot uh, co-regulate you. Even if you write a text and somebody 20 minutes later writes back, what's up? That's not going to... <laughs> That's not going to uh, regulate anything. But of course, if we've been wounded in childhood, if we've had negative interpersonal experiences, then we will uh, be terrified of becoming vulnerable. And we will uh, find um, authentic disclosure of our core self, which means the feelings we're actually feeling in our body uh, our state of being. We won't want to express it. We'll want to, if we're uh, dismissive, we'll want to get rid of it. If we are uh, preoccupied, we'll do anything to present a lovable false self to another person to be, to get our attachment needs. We'll very often, if we're anxious, trade sex for intimacy just as a desperate attempt to feel the experience of love. So, um, the whole point of today is that to end addictive behaviors, we have to replace our unhealthy attachment models, which are stored in our right hemisphere, with healthy ones. So there's some real challenges to do this. Number one, attachment beliefs, emotional beliefs, or otherwise known as schemas, are all held unconsciously they are what's known as implicit memories. What's an implicit memory? An implicit memory is a behavior that you develop before you can even remember learning how to do it. Uh, but you do it and it's automatic now. And if somebody asks you to change it, you could say, oh sure, I could change that. I could change the way I walk. I could change the way I, you know, 
hold a tennis racket or ride a bike, but actually, or brush my teeth or, you know, my expectations of who to find love from. Uh, but <laughs> no matter how much you tell yourself, I'm going to use willpower, I'm going to change this, God damn it, I'm not going to date anyone who's emotionally unavailable. <laughs> <laughs> ever again and you will wind up dating someone who's emotionally unavailable and brushing your teeth the same way it's funny uh, Kathy has said that I always slam doors too loudly and in the course of 19 years I have been utterly unable to close doors quietly because in my household it was a very loud you know uh Jewish household screaming lots of you know and people close doors as a message <laughs> I'm out of here you're not invited give me space you know it was a message and so I don't I'm not sending a message but I just still sit down and close doors and I cannot uh, I cannot like you know uh, uh, I cannot it's implicit. It's like deeply, deeply wired. Now, good news is, even deeply wired behaviors and perceptions can be changed. The brain is, at the end of the day, neuroplastic. It can actually, if you have enough right experiences, you can change behaviors in individuals. The first thing, though, you have to change not by creating more stress, because the more stress you create, the more someone will actually switch off the very parts of the brain that can lead to neuroplasticity, the frontal lobe, and you will wind up back in core defensive behaviors once again. So the more stress, the more judgment, the more criticism, the more we bombard ourselves with a sense like, why can't I change? What's the matter with me? I'll never wind up in a healthy relationship. I'll always be alone. I'll never be successful. No one will ever love me. I'll never look good in relation to other people, I'll never be able to blah, 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 is you're simply recreating. We're simply recreating the very conditions that lead us to regress back to the deeply wired because the more we switch off, the we create stress. Stress switches us down sympathetic, switches off the functioning of the the frontal cortex, especially the dorsal lateral, which would allow us to change. So if we want to change one, it has to be in a loving, caring, soothing environment. Primarily to end uh, addiction and uh, compulsive behaviors, which are all attempts to alleviate emotional states in us or states of being that were not mirrored and soothed in childhood or subsequently in our peer relationships. If we want to find another way to soothe those feelings of you know, mounting fear of abandonment, mounting sense of emptiness, mounting sense of loneliness, mounting sense of shame, whatever it is that starts to arise, the only way is we have to replace that, un that damaged attachment model that love is people who are not available or not empathetic or not kind or not, a, not soothing or not appreciative. We have to replace it with a healthy attachment model. 
And that's something that is not done through language. And any form of, well, therapy is vital because in the, it can be vital because it, the, the therapist creates as, the therapist creates the ideal parent, right? Creates the soothing, appreciative, empathetic bond. That's one way. It could be done in refuge recovery or a 12-step recovery. If you find a soothing, empathetic, kind person to work with, you start that process. Most importantly of the, the two, if you find a relationship with someone who's secure. If you are in this room, chances are you're not a secure one. So you get a pass. <laughs> You get a pass. You do not have to be the secure one in the relationship. But your job is to find someone who's secure. I can talk about that a little later, how to tell when someone is secure. If you wind up in a relationship with somebody who's anxious or avoidant or who is, uh, unless you're both doing a huge amount of work, you're both in therapy, or at least one of you is, and you're both constantly addressing and learning how to create secure attachment, then the chances are it will be very difficult to sustain the relationship. Um, there are what's known as earned secure, people who start out their life as uh, preoccupied or avoidant or disorganized and through spiritual endeavor um, and so forth, um, can develop the attributes of, can essentially change their attachment style. It's very possible. Mary Main's work originally came up with a depressing number of 10 years, which is, you know, I mean, my God, that's like, that's a long time, right? But in the recent works of Daniel P. Brown and Sam Elliott at Harvard show that if they use, we use a certain degree of tools, we can cut that number by into a fourth of it, like two years, three years. So what do we need to do? Well, besides making sure we wind up with secure people in our lives, secure friends, which means friends who are available that you can be authentic with, that you can display your actual emotions, not conceal or push them away. A secure relationship would be great, but also, what I'm going to focus on now and lead us in a meditation is called the ideal parent visualization. Um, this works because all of the all of the emotional wounds that create insecure attachment happen before <coughs> verbal life, before verbal memory. So we can't use, as I said, language. What we can use is imagery. Imagery speaks directly, actually, to the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere, Alan Shore at USC, is shown to be the hemisphere that holds attachment models, if you want to be specific, in the, uh, not the, uh, right prefrontal, orbital frontal, orbital frontal region. So, um, how do we do it? Well, in the protocol that Daniel Brown and Sam Elliott came up with is very, very similar to an early Buddhist practice known as Devanusati. In Devanusati, uh, early Buddhist practitioners would sit and just visualize a loving 
warm, embracing, angelic being that would be looking at you and noting all of your experience with nothing but metta, unconditional kindness and friendliness. In other Buddhist lineages, there's variations of this practice. In Tibetan, there's lots of guided visualizations of uh, gods and goddesses who are present with you. So, um, what we're doing in these, these early Buddhist practices is the same as what uh, Brown and Elliot suggested. In fact, Brown is an is a ardent Buddhist practitioner, has written books on Buddhist practice. So he used guided visualizations as a way not only to speak to these core, deeply embedded, implicit attachment behaviors, because he knew that they would reach these parts that are wounded in us, but he also wanted to use something that he knew would be easy to practice. So in their words, it's the ideal parent. What we'll do is we sit and we will visualize entirely from our imagination uh, someone who would be, and this is you create this person, try not to use, you know, you know, Aunt Isabel. Uh, we want this to be a visualization of an ideal being. And what we're going to, aiming to do is somatically create a feeling of what it's like to be secure. And this is really important because if you have a feeling of what it's like to be secure in, in a relationship, then when you meet a new friend or you meet, meet someone who could be in a possible attachment partner, you're on a date, you're interviewing uh, someone to, as a roommate, any resonant interpersonal experience, if you grew up in an insecure childhood, you don't somatically have a feeling of what security with someone is really like. And therefore, you won't, there will be nothing for that person's, the interaction to land on. If you have a sense of what security is like somatically, then when you're in that experience, it will light up that, those feelings in your body, and then the part of your brain that makes decisions, the ventral media, will say, oh, I know this feeling. This feeling is being secure. I'm going to choose this relationship, this person for a friend. If you don't have that somatic feeling in you, then you'll revert to simply choosing someone who makes you excited. And guess who makes you excited? People who are not reliably available. So we want to create this secure feeling so that the decision maker in your brain, which is essentially the, the ventral medial, which integrates feelings from your body into awareness, will know what to look for when it needs to choose which kind of people to proceed in dating or to proceed as being supportive friends or to be people at work that you can share your frustrations with. So I hope that was interesting and now we're going to do a little meditation.
So at the beginning, I'd like to request that a couple of things. Uh, this meditation, just try to be as comfortable as you can. And imagine that there's a vacuum cleaner in your brain that could vacuum out any of the images you hold of what a meditator should look like. Just throw that away and just, when you close your eyes, just allow your body to wobble a little bit right to left, front to back. Just create like your, the top of your body is like a top slowing down and then just allow your body to on its own come to what feels to be the most comfortable upright position. So I'll lead you through some breaths that'll just <coughs> soothe, try to keep the uh, nervous system up in the rest and digest. So taking a moment first just to tilt your chin up, your head a little back, like you're looking at a tall building. I'm just having us do this so that we won't uh, we won't allow the head to slouch in front of the chest. That's the, that's the real area just to put any effort in. Just let the rest of your body relax. And now taking a complete in-breath through the nose and lifting up the shoulders, holding them up, and then begin to rotate them back so you're opening up your chest. And as you breathe out through your mouth, Drop your shoulders so you got that nice open chest. And when you have that open chest, we're in that confident state. It basically sends a message up through the insula saying, I'm not in any danger. My shoulders aren't collapsed in front of me. I feel I'm okay. And then take another full in-breath and either push out or pull in your belly. Whatever feels really awkward, just do it. Make that belly awkward. And then as you breathe out, soften the belly. Just allow it all to hang out. Nobody's looking. If you've ever been told to hold your belly in, well, this is the time to say no. I'm just going <laughs> to let it all hang out and that's where the hub of the vagal vagus nerve is you soften the belly you're switching on the vagal brake your heart rate slows blood pressure drops you're actually creating white blood cells and then, for the third in-breath, squinch the muscles of the face, make an ugly, pinched little face, holding the corners of the mouth close together, clenching the jaw, clenching the muscles around the eyes, furrowing the brow, and then as you breathe out, smoothing every muscle in the face out, releasing the jaw, Breathing into the eyes and imagine 
that the eye sockets are like two little couches and you're encouraging the eyeballs just to relax, telling your eyes there's nothing anymore it needs to look out for. There's nothing for, there's nothing going on. Now's your time just to settle in. And when the eyes stop bouncing about, you'll find that the mind does too. The breathing in to the eyes is becoming aware and as you breathe out, softening all the micro muscles around the eyes and Allowing all the actual sensations that are going on to be part of your awareness. So, the sound of the fan, ambient sounds of the room. Sounds from outdoors. Lights flickering behind closed eyelids. Any aches and pains. Any sense of ease. And this is for a little while we're first just going to incline the exhalation to be as smooth as possible and as long as possible. That's the fastest way to tone the vagal structures, achieve a state of ease. So the long exhalation, just don't push out the breath, just release it ever so slowly, like you're releasing air from a balloon, not pushing it out. Letting go of any idea of what meditation is, should be. And whenever thoughts start to construct an alternative virtual reality different from what's actually being experienced through memory or fantasy or just a lot of language in the mind. That's a real opportunity. Opportunity one to one strengthen the part of the brain deep in the both temporal lobe and elsewhere that is aware, that's not part of experience, that can separate awareness from experience, just to strengthen that mindfulness. And then it's another opportunity to 
strengthen the pathways back home, which we do gently without any frustration, returning awareness to all the sensations surrounding us, relaxing the body, rewarding this journey back home to the body with a nice soothing out breath, exhalation. Letting go of any idea of what meditation should be, just trying to adapt that state of being when you're the beginning of a very long vacation. Thoughts about what's going on back home or what might happen in the future are unattractive. All you want to do is just reach your destination and relax. And our destination is right here right now. The greatest state is when we are not seeking anything, not going anywhere, nothing to do. Nowhere to go. For this moment, no one to become or to take care of. Just resting in your natural home.
Every time you come back home, just once again inclining the exhalation to be long and smooth. If it's difficult to stay present, you could just count the length of the in-breath, length of the out-breath. So if you can reach three on the in-breath, try to reach five or six on the out-breath. Or you can use A Buddhist phrase, on the in-breath, thinking, may I be, and on the out-breath, happy, peaceful, free of stress, in-breath, may I be, out-breath, happy, peaceful, free of stress.
So at this point, I'd like to invite you to bring awareness to the area of your mind or awareness where you can visualize places or people. And just to find that area, just take a moment to visualize a place you know really well. Maybe your kitchen, your bedroom. Just a little an image really quickly of some place that you see every day and just have a sense of where that image appears very often slightly above the eyes, as if there was a movie screen in the mind. For some of us, we'll be able to hold images. Others, it'll just be little flickers of images. We'll just have a sense. Now I'd like you to take a journey back in time. We're in the time machine and we are going back through time. And not only are we going back through time, but we're becoming smaller, our bodies in their younger forms. And I'd like you to find a time in one of your earliest memories in childhood of when you felt there wasn't a secure, loving, or attentive, or present parent who was available enough to help you understand what was going on in your life. You're smaller, you're vulnerable. Something has happened, maybe in your family, maybe parents are acting in ways that don't make any sense, or one of our parents has disappeared, or is not available. See if you can feel how it would be to be that vulnerable, that much desperately in need of someone to take care of us, all of our well-being dependent on these relationships, but at one point, if not so many times, was vital, caring, Support was not present. Visualize what room or place you would be. Would you be in your bedroom or in your living room? Would you be outside? Where are you when you feel most alone at this time of your life?
And now gently I'd like you to start to construct what the ideal caring person would look like. Someone who is now present, looking at you. This person really cares about you. This person doesn't want to be anywhere else right now, but stay with you until you feel soothed, understood. This person really sees how you feel and feel and really cares about. Make you understand just how okay these feelings are doesn't judge you if you feel frustrated or lonely or tired. There's no feeling or state of being that's in any way troublesome. You just visualize using your imagination or parts of people you've met, just this ideal caregiver, see if you can find in this moment some sense, even slight, of where you feel secure when you're with someone. Some of us it might be just a warmth or a slight opening in the chest. Maybe a heaviness around the eyes might feel slightly lighter. Imagine this ideal figure with a soft expression whispering to you, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. find where what it feels like to be loved or cared about in your body, your breath.
And then very gently switch the perspective. You are now the ideal parent looking at your younger, very vulnerable self right in front of you, holding up an image in your mind of what you might have looked like at this age. Maybe you've seen a photograph where you just had a sense and visualize yourself. This child's just looking for care and understanding and support and just transmit I care about you. I care about how you feel. I love you. Keep going. So at this point, just release any imagery and just stay with any, no matter how slight, no matter how imperceptible or soft, just find that felt sense of the secure, just cherishing it, it's your most vital asset. From that feeling, you can guide yourself through life. 